All right, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Titus. We're continuing our study through the book of Titus. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 11 today. Titus 2, 11. Definitions are important. Our everyday common experience tells us this. We all use words and language every day. We use certain words to communicate certain ideas to other people. When we use those words, we usually don't think about what the definitions of those words are because most of the time we just assume that other people have similar definitions and that's really what it takes for proper communication, right? But we can see how definitions really matter when we talk with someone who speaks a different language or when we, even when we talk to our children. There are many times when I talk to my own children and I use words that they don't really understand. Last week we were on vacation. We were supposed to spend the week in Myrtle Beach at a beach house. But with Hurricane Irma coming, um, we weren't sure if that was going to work out. It turned out it didn't work out. As we waited to see where Irma would hit, we had many conversations about it with our kids. They would ask over and over, are we going to go to the beach? Are we going to go somewhere else? What are we doing? And we told them over and over that we were waiting to see where the hurricane would go. And then after a couple of days of having, having these same conversations with them, Ezra, my five-year-old, asked a very important question. Dada, what's a hurricane? I then realized he'd probably been totally confused about what we'd been talking about for the past couple days. Uh, He'd either forgotten or he just never really knew what a hurricane was. So I took some time to explain what a hurricane was and the the destruction it can cause. And then he was obviously terrified for the rest of our vacation, so (laughs) it worked out well. Um, We ended up going somewhere else, so it was fine. Um, The Christian life is no different. We use many biblical terms that we have to define in order to understand Scripture rightly. If you've been a Christian for very long, you probably know how important it is to get get an understanding of words like sin and justification, sanctification, the Trinity, missions, the church, or even just the word love. It's impossible to have a profitable conversation with someone if there's not some consensus on what these words mean in the first place. This is one of the many reasons we take theology seriously here. We teach systematic theology classes. We catechize our children because we believe that definitions matter. One of the most important and repeated words of Scripture is the word grace. As we approach the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, we're reminded of one of the five solas that defined Reformation teaching. Sola gratia, grace alone. We use the word grace all the time as Christians. We often sing about grace in our songs. Many of us could probably quote from memory at least one passage that contains the word grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith, Ephesians 2 says. And in general, I think most of the time we understand the word grace in basically correct terms. But I also think that many times our understanding, while correct, can also be incomplete at times. But today my hope is that we will see that God's grace is our power for holy living. God's grace is our power for holy living. 
We're going to see that in three ways. First, God's grace has brought salvation for all people. Second, God's grace trains us for godliness. And third, God's grace prepares us for the return of Christ. Now, before we we jump into our passage in chapter two, let's talk about how this passage fits with the rest of Titus that we've seen. Context is everything in understanding scripture, especially Paul's letters. So if you want to turn real quickly, just one one page back to Titus 1.1, we read these words, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So there's a truth that we are to believe, and there is a godliness that we are to live. Our truth is to accord with our godliness. Our doctrine is to match our life. And our life is to match our doctrine. Paul then starts the letter by telling Titus to appoint godly leaders in the church to steer the ship and gives very specific things to look for in those leaders. Things like living above reproach and self-control and holy and disciplined. He then tells Titus to beware of certain wolves who might, uh, take, who might uh, make their way into the church. And look at chapter one, verse 16. They profess to know God but they deny him by their works. So again, their life doesn't match their doctrine. There's hypocrisy here. In chapter two, he starts off by saying, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So you have sound doctrine, now teach people how to live lives that accord with sound doctrine. Again, it's the same idea, life, doctrine, these things must accord, they must match. And that's what Kyle preached on last week. He, he addressed f- five categories, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and bond servants. Here's how you can live lives that accord with the truth of the gospel. If you look down at verse 11 of chapter two, the beginning of our passage, we have this word for. It's a very important word because it tells us that we, what we are about to read is directly related to what came before it. It's giving a reason or a ground for what came before it. If I were to say, and this is almost true, I I wrote this before this happened, it's funny. Uh, If I were to say, I was up all night with a stomach ache, for I ate an entire box of donuts before bed, it's clear that eating the box of donuts is the reason or the ground for why I had a stomach ache. So the stomachache results from the eating of the donuts, right? It's the same thing in our passage today. We can say that everything Kyle said last week is grounded in what we see this week, okay? That's the connection. So with all that in mind, let's start reading in Titus 2, verse 1. We're going to start in verse 1 and read down through 15. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity 
dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that, an, uh, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing to say, nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. The first thing I want us to understand from this passage is that the grace of God has brought salvation for all people. It's right there in verse 11. It seems easy to understand, right? This is what comes to our mind many times when we think about the grace of God. We have been saved by grace. We have been given something that we don't deserve. That's usually how we define grace most of the time, right? Getting something good that you don't deserve. And that's a fine definition as far as it goes. So let's remind ourselves today of why it's a fine definition. What is this grace of God that Paul is referring to? It is, of course, the appearing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to atone for the sin of his people. In fact, later on in this passage, Paul specifically explains how this grace has appeared. Look in verse 13. We read that we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. But then we read, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession. So when Paul says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, what he is referring to is the coming of Christ into the world. And of course, this is the centerpiece of the entire Christian faith, right? God's grace has been most fully revealed in the act of sending his own son into this dark and sinful world to keep the law of his father perfectly. He never sinned. He was tortured and murdered on a cross for the sin of his people, and then he was raised from the dead. And now that Christ is alive, he has ascended back to the Father and now rules and reigns over his church in the hearts of his people. That's what Paul has in mind when he says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This salvation has appeared, like we just said, not just for some, but for all people. And we have to understand what this means in this context. What has Paul just said? Remember in the passage before, Kyle's passage from last week, he addressed older men, younger men, older women, younger women, and bond servants. And right after he says that, he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This phrase, for all people, refers to those categories of people that he just talked about. He's not saying that God's grace has appeared and brought salvation for every single person in the world. Paul was not a universalist. He's not saying that every person has now received the saving grace of God, okay? 
Remember, he's writing to those who are already Christians. He's saying, older men live godly lives. Younger men live godly lives. Older women live godly lives. Younger women live godly lives. And bond servants live godly lives. For you all, all of you have been saved by God's grace. That's how we're to understand this verse in its context. Now, what are the implications of this? The implications are that God's saving grace is not bound by gender or social class. Paul is actually making a very radical statement here for his own day. Paul's grace is for men and women and children and slaves. No person can be cut off from God's saving work based on their gender, their vocation, or their social status. God's saving grace is available for all. Looking again at verse 14, we see that Christ came to to redeem a people for his own possession. Paul is saying, all you people out there who think God doesn't have time for children or women or slaves, think again. Jesus came to make them his own treasured possession. Some of you may need to hear this today. Maybe you've been battling the unbelief that says, okay, I can, see, I can see how Christ would come to die for some people, and I can see how he might love them, but me? I mean, surely his grace isn't really for me, right? Maybe you've sinned grievously. Maybe you've been mistreated your whole life and made to feel like you're worthless, Whatever the case is, this grace is for you. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. There is nothing inherent about you that has cut you off or that can cut you off from the saving grace of God. You can belong to Christ today as his treasured possession by faith. His grace is no respecter of persons. There is no limit to it. There is no qualification for it except one. There's one qualification for the grace of God. You have to need it. Do you need it? I need it. Are you a sinner? If you're here and you're a sinner who has rebelled against God's law, if you're prone to worship anything other than him, if you try to live a good life to only continually fail, then you qualify. You qualify for God's grace. Take this time now to pray, to ask God to help you repent of sin, trust in him for eternal life. His grace is available to you. So we see the grace of God has brought salvation for all people. That's usually what we think when we think about the grace of God, right? The redemption that we have in Christ. But if you look now in verse 12, we can see another function of God's grace. We read that God's grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. So the grace of God trains us for godliness. Give me a second. Battling this 
sickness the last couple days. The grace of God trains us for godliness. Now, this is something that we could all put into practice more, right? Some translations say God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. When was the last time you renounced sin and ungodliness in your life? When was the last time you renounced that nagging sin that just won't seem to go away? When was the last time you woke in the morning and said to yourself and to God, I will not let that sin gain a foothold in my life today? When it comes into my mind, I will put it out. I will not even entertain it. I will not see how close I can get to it. I will take every thought captive and make it obedient to you. Have you renounced sin in your life? Yes, this takes effort and work. Yes, it's hard, but it's also God's grace that empowers us to do it. This is not some kind of Stuart Smalley, name it, claim it kind of nonsense. Uh, you probably don't know who Stuart Smalley is. It's really old. Um, he w- looks into the mirror and says, you're beautiful, right? You, you, you're wonderful. Everyone likes you. He's talking to himself, right? He's trying to encourage himself and, and build himself up every day. But we don't renounce sin in an effort to try to become someone that we're not, Okay? That's not what I'm saying. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is a present reality for you if you are in Christ. You are a new creation. So when we renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, we are not being fake. We are training ourselves by the grace of God to become more like we really are. We have to think about our Christian lives like this. We have been given a new identity in Christ, and it is the joyful responsibility of all Christians to seek to live out that new identity. You are not just a sinner saved by grace, just a sinner saved by grace. You are a sinner saved by grace, but you've been united with Christ and counted righteous in him, and now you are called to live in that grace and to pursue what the next verse says, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This word self-controlled is used five times in this short letter. Paul must want Titus and his hearers to really get this point. Remember that Paul is writing to Cretan Christians who he says are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They are the epitome of people who lack self-control. But what about us? What ways do you lack self-control? Are you being mastered by any unholy desire? If so, confess those things to the Lord today and a faithful brother or sister and then seek to live self-controlled lives. We're also called to live upright lives. To live upright means that we are consistently honorable and honest in our character and behavior. Do you find yourself regularly stretching truth or maybe just flat out lying. 
Do you find yourself having to sneak around people because you're afraid of your sin being found out? Are you deceptive in the way you present yourself or other people in order to get what you want or manipulate them in some way? If other people could see your behavior when you're alone, what would they think? Brothers and sisters, I fear that many of us are living with consciences that are condemning us. We are terrified of being exposed for our sin. We are not honest with ourselves or others about our sinful behavior or what is going on in our hearts. And so when we think about being upright, many of us only feel condemned. Let today be the day when we confess these things to the Lord and a trusted friend and we look to the grace of God. The answer is not to just stop doing those things. The answer is the first point. (laughs) We've been redeemed. The salvation of God has appeared for us. Let's receive that. And we're to live godly lives in the present age. Godly character is what Paul is after here. He wants our lives to match our doctrine. Our present age, just like Paul's, is full of darkness. And we have such a great opportunity to shine the truth of the gospel into this present darkness by not only proclaiming the gospel with our mouths, but living lives that accord with that gospel. Now I want to kind of shift slightly here in the second point and and talk about something that's related to this. Why is it that we often have the opposite view of grace that this passage presents. You see, according to Paul's understanding of grace, grace actually trains us, it disciplines or teaches us to put off sinful things, sinful desires, and to pursue self-control and godliness. Grace trains us for godliness, right? That's what the passage says. Think about that. You're a sinner. You deserve God's wrath and damnation. God's grace has appeared to you, and now you can be forgiven of sin. You can be made right with God. This happens as a free gift of God. There's nothing you can do to earn it. God is not compelled to give you grace. But what is the common response that many people have to this message? Well, if that's true, then I can do whatever I want, right? I'll just go live it up. Let me just go sin it up, right? If God's going to forgive me, if his grace covers my sin, then, man, let's just go live it up. Let's sin so that grace may abound, right? There's a name for that reasoning. It's called licentiousness. It means that we are using God's grace as a license to sin. But here we see That Paul's view of grace is just the opposite. God's grace is what actually results in our continuing growth in godliness and purity, not licentiousness. So what's wrong? What what is wrong with the way that many times we think about God's grace? How does this work? If it's wrong for us to view God's grace as a license to sin, then how should we be thinking about it? Well, this passage in verse 14 gives uh, three helpful truths that point us in the right direction, away from licentiousness 
and toward holiness. We're going to look at these three helpful pointers, okay? First, God's grace revealed in the work of Christ was meant to redeem us from all lawlessness, okay? This is the first thing we have to understand. God's grace redeems us from all lawlessness, The grace of God is not meant to just overlook your sin. It's not like God is up in heaven saying, I see that sin, Caleb. It's not really that big of a deal, so I'm just gonna let it go. No. In fact, God does not overlook any sin. None. He treats every sinful thought, every sinful action, every sin of omission and commission with eternal significance. You see, the degree of punishment that we deserve for our sin is based on the one offended, okay? I use my typical military illustration here, right? If you're a private in the military and you punch another private, are you gonna get in trouble Yeah, not much. If you're a private in the military and you punch a three-star general, are you gonna get in trouble? A lot more trouble, right? The action is the same, but the one offended is much greater. The offense is greater based on the one offended. Apply that to God, the one who is offended. Brothers and sisters, every sin Every sinful thought, every evil deed is deserving of eternal punishment and damnation. Either you will bear the eternal punishment for your sin in hell, or the grace of God punished Christ for them on the cross in your place. And when we turn from our sin and we put our trust in the work of Christ, his righteous life becomes ours and we are redeemed. Those who are redeemed are called to live in accordance with that redemption by not returning again to those sinful habits that put Christ on the cross in the first place. So one of the purposes of God's grace is to redeem us from lawlessness. That's the whole point If we think God's grace gives us a license to sin, we are definitely not getting that idea from the Bible. We've come up with that ourselves. We are either misunderstanding or intentionally abusing God's grace. In fact, Romans 6 asks this very question. Paul, in talking about this issue, says, are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? His answer By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? It's not even comprehensible to Paul. How could we do that? When the grace of God is meant to redeem us from lawlessness, not provide more opportunity for lawlessness. So grace is not just overlooking sin. It's the power of God in redeeming us from it. This brings us to the second truth about God's saving grace. Second, the work of Christ is meant to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Remember the question that we're asking is, how does the grace of God train us for godliness and not licentiousness? 
It's meant, the grace of God is meant to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We can't treat God's grace as a license to sin. Why? Because we belong to him. Those who belong to Christ have been united with him. Anyone united with Christ who continues in consistent, unrepentant sin is not living in accordance with their new nature. Church, this is why we experience guilt and shame and conviction when we sin. Anyone who truly belongs to Christ can never consistently say, it's okay for me to sin because God's grace will forgive me for it. No, brothers and sisters, we have been given a new identity and we belong to Jesus. He is working to purify his church for his own possession. He is preparing his church for the day when he will return to receive her as his holy and pure bride. And until that day, we are called to live as those who belong to him. Those who belong to Christ live consistently with the truth of the gospel. Not perfectly. I'm not saying that we have to live perfectly, right? But we live consistently, repentantly in a trajectory that says, I belong to Jesus. And third, those who belong to Christ are to be zealous for good works. How many of us think about our lives in this way? How many of us try to see how close we can get to the world or how close we can get to sin without crossing some imaginary line instead of energetically pursuing good works? The fact is we have all kinds of opportunities for good works every day. From a simple encouraging word for our spouse to blessing someone financially, or to caring for orphans and widows in our community. Are you zealous for these good works? Or are you, like I so often am, reluctant to do those things because it's inconvenient or time-consuming? Sure, I can do good works, but I'll probably complain about it the whole time. I've had to confess this to God this week. Lord, help me to be zealous for good works. Instead of just trying to see how much of the world I can get and how close to sin I can get without really sinning, which is sinful, right? Um, the other side is, man, how can, what are some good works I can pursue today? What are some, some, some ways I can bless other people? How, what are ways I can flee from this and pursue holiness rather than complacency. Today we're going to witness three baptisms. If you're involved in those baptisms, feel free at this time to step out, get prepared. So far we've seen that the grace of God has brought salvation for all people. It trains us for godliness. And last we see in this passage that the grace of God prepares us for the return of Christ. The grace of God prepares us for the return of Christ. Look in verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we understand God's grace, when we experience it, we anticipate the second coming of Jesus. 
See, those who are eagerly awaiting the coming of Christ will not use his grace as a license for disobedience. This word waiting here does not mean the kind of bored or listless waiting we often do as we wait at a stoplight or we wait at the doctor's office, right? It's an eager waiting. It's looking forward with hope and great anticipation. If you've ever had a dog, then you know the kind of waiting I'm talking about. As soon as the owner leaves the house, they stand by the window, right, and watch for their return. You come home, they're standing in the same spot. They're just they're there, they're ready, they're waiting. Or maybe the better example would be the kind of waiting that I know I've experienced at the end of the school year, like when I was in college or seminary, right before summer break. You know you have those last few projects or papers due, but they don't really seem like drudgery anymore because you are so eagerly looking forward to the coming summer vacation. You put all your energy and effort into those papers, getting them done, getting them done right, not having to worry about them anymore because your joy and hope at the end is at an all-time high. You're looking forward. You're anticipating the summer. When we think about the Christian life, that's what Paul is getting at. As we wait eagerly for the return of Christ, we are not apathetic or lazy. We are working We are pursuing holiness, not worldly passions. We are putting our sin to death and doing the work of ministry. We are pouring ourselves out for the good of others and seeking to pull others up with us. And we do it all as we look forward to the day of Christ's return. If that's your view of the Christian life, you would never turn the grace of God into a license for sin. Instead, the grace of God becomes your motivation to renounce sin and pursue holiness. You see, church, Christ's return is imminent. Throughout the New Testament, we see that the apostles and writers spoke of Christ's return as though it could happen any minute. John MacArthur, when he's talking about this very topic, says this. He asks the question, why is it so important to believe that Christ could come at any moment? This is how he answers that question. The hope of Christ's imminent coming has a powerful sanctifying and purifying effect on us. The knowledge that Christ's coming is drawing closer should motivate us to prepare to pursue Christ's likeness and to put off all the things that pertain to our former lives without Christ. So ask yourself today, am I eagerly waiting for the return of Christ? Do I even think about that? Or am I so caught up in the world and in my own thoughts that I rarely even think about something that eternal? That Christ could return at any moment? Church, there is great sanctifying power in anticipating the return of our Lord. We belong to him. He will not leave us as orphans. He will return. And until that day, may we, be, may we be people of light, renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. So today, I've tried to show that God's grace actually accomplishes a lot more than we often realize. God's grace has brought salvation for all people. God's grace trains us for godliness, and God's grace prepares us for the return of Christ. But I'd like to end with verse 15. 
Look at verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. These words were meant for Titus, but they are certainly meant for us as well. To exhort means that we are to strongly encourage these things. To rebuke means that we express sharp disapproval when others contradict them. Church, my prayer is that we would be a church that regularly points people not only to theological truth, but also to holy living. We must always be mindful of ways that our lives don't match our doctrine. Each person here must be humble enough to acknowledge our own sinfulness and be willing to receive rebuke when it comes. We don't want to be the kind of people that just get angry when others point out how our life doesn't match our doctrine. But if we're able to humble ourselves so that whether we are the one exhorting or rebuking or the one receiving the exhortation or rebuke, we are thankful. Because the truth is we need to be regularly reminded of God's grace. We are prone to forget God's grace or to put it in a box and to forget and not realize how it impacts every area of our lives. Or we become legalists or we twist God's grace into licentiousness. And the answer is found in the gospel message itself. So let's be a church where the gospel is central. Let's always be reminding one another that we have been saved by God's grace, that God's grace is training us for godliness, and that God's grace is preparing us all for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because God's grace is our power for holy living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the grace that we have received in Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have not saved us at just one point in time and then just left us to ourselves to figure things out. But God, you, we have been saved by grace and in that salvation, you are still working in us. You are sanctifying us. You are changing our hearts. You are training us for godliness. May we be people who pursue holiness because we are a new creation. May we not fall back into the patterns of sin. May we not, Father, believe the lies that tell us that we can continue to live in sin because we have been given God's grace. But rather, we would say, it is my joy, it is my privilege to pursue holiness because I have received God's grace. Father, I pray now that as we witness these baptisms that uh, we would rejoice with those who are being baptized. Father, may this be just another uh, glorious um, observance of how the grace, of how your grace has transformed lives. We get to witness a visual representation of being buried with Christ in baptism and being raised to walk in newness of life. We thank you for that privilege today. Lord, may we uh, exalt in it pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.